1: plushcare.com slash weight loss
0: Hi, I'm Anoush.
1: And I'm Stephen.
0: Alva's on holiday this week, and on today's New Statesman podcast, we discuss the point of public inquiries, and you ask us, was Keir Starmer's appearance on Piers Morgan's Life Stories a misfire or a masterstroke? Last week, we didn't manage to talk about this because it happened after we had finished recording, but two retired police officers and an ex-solicitor accused of altering police statements after Hillsborough were acquitted. And the judge was saying that there was no case to answer because it was not a statutory inquiry and therefore not considered a court of law. Um, So it was not a course of public justice, which could have been Obviously, this was incredibly disappointing for the families of the victims, um, but it also said a lot about the way that we do inquiries into public failings in this country, um, which has been a hot topic of late because of the COVID inquiry, which will start next spring, um, and also a number of different inquiries that are ongoing, including into the Grenfell fire and into Boris Johnson's curtains. <laughs> so Stephen, what did you take from from that ruling?
1: I, I not I don't I don't want to just sort of speak Andy Burnham's Twitter thread on this into, into the mic, but I'm gonna just speak Andy Burnham's Twitter thread on this. I just think that it is a sign of a, a legal system that badly needs reform on this subject. But before the sort of, you know, that kind of cabal of lawyers on twitter who love to do the you know the listen up muggles you've missed you know why don't you understand the the beauty of the law i'm not saying that you know that it was the wrong verdict within within the law or that you know the lawyers involved are bad people or any of that kind of stuff i'm just saying that 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 verdict can be legally reached suggests to me that that is a troubling lacuna in english law I don't see how one then couldn't argue in the context of, say, the Grenfell Inquiry than if I, you know, Stephen Bush Inc. thinks it's made... Made some flammable cladding, and it goes. Oh well, you know, it's fine. We don't have to be honest with this inquiry, even though we know that this inquiry will form part of the evidence, and it will act as informal evidence gathering for you know for the various trials that you know that, that people hope will 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 result from it. Yeah, it's important primarily because of, of the 30 year struggle for, for justice. But yeah, I think the the fact that you know still the yeah the various claims that had have, have been successfully debunked inquiry after inquiry were able to be sort of dug up again that you have a situation where you can go oh well you know who could have known and it comes back to the central need that public officials have to have a duty of candor and then there need to be specific legal changes to ensure that this defense could not be used in the future i think where to relate it to grenfell there's a specific extra dimension there that the hillsborough law change envisages a duty of candor on Public officials, and yeah, this is one of the big problems with our. I think, at least, and I really, you know, what you think about this is, as, as you know, Britain editor. Then it feels to me like one of the problems with the sort of world of outsourcing and yeah, private public partnership is not that outsourcing organisations are bad per se, or that private public partnership is always bad. It's that the second you do it, at the moment you enter this legal grey area where you don't have transparency, right? And then essentially, I think if you if you make cladding and it goes on a public building, you sh- you have the same duty as a public. Organization to be know, uh, yeah, the same duty of candor should I think apply to you, and I think yeah that is the where one of the issues is but I guess it does also um, speak to lots of the questions about what the point of an inquiry is
0: exactly I think that's the heart of the issue which is inquiries should be to further you know public knowledge public interest transparency that should be the point of them but often when inquiries are announced they 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 can um, have the opposite impact so you, you know you and I both know the frustration of you know, something happening, some mistake, some scandal, and then the government quickly announces some kind of inquiry, usually one that, you know, isn't legally binding in the way that we've been talking about. And then they are able to say every time you try and ask a minister or you try and ask, you know, a Whitehall department about it. They're they're allowed to say, well, this is the subject of an ongoing inquiry. We wouldn't want to presuppose its conclusions. We'll have to wait till it reports, and then inevitably it reports. You know, at a point that's very busy in the news cycle, and that's the story over f- for you know whoever it's most uncomfortable for. So I think that sometimes inquiries can play the role of actually obfuscating the truth, or at least holding the the relevant parties to account because they're used as a, oh well, let's brush this aside for you for a few weeks until everyone's. Forgotten about it, and journalists are less like a dog with a bone. And I suppose journalists themselves can be to blame for that too. But I do think there needs to be more of a uh, there needs to be a change in in the candor that's required for these kind of inquiries and what their actual purpose is for. Who gets to call them? Who gets to set the perimeters? Who gets to decide when they report?
1: I think to me a really simple change that I would make. I say to someone who's yeah the, was the chair of a commission that did as commissions tend to do run late and therefore i've now got really passive get really, really snippy whenever someone goes oh you know this commission then the government set up has be has run late and i'm just like look guys actually it's, it's <laughs> you'd be surprised okay but we were always going to have to release into the communal papers which meant we were always going to have to release broadly on a thursday which would have meant that we would never have had the option of going let's hide this when no one will see this. And I do think a really simple solution is to go like, yeah, you can. your commission can take three years, it can take two years, but it's going to be published on a Friday. Yeah, so you, you can't have, you know, the ridiculousness of the government's uh, racial disparity report. Yeah, hey, hey, here's 500 words badly summarizing it in a really controversialized way. No, no one can see the full thing, but we will complain that people yeah. have not <laughs> have responded. done exactly what we wanted yeah to yeah. With this.
0: yeah yeah
1: <laughs> it's just like i can't believe that you claimed that this report said the thing that we told all the journalists it said so i think partly yeah one of the changes you just make them report in a certain way but i do think there's an underlying problem not yeah not with anything you've said but i think we saw this last week with and indeed throughout the covid process right the way everyone's talked about this inquiry, including Dominic Cummings himself, who would be a subject of said inquiry, is to see it as a thing which is about punishing politicians. Now, sometimes they can end up doing that. I think it would be hard to argue that John Gummer's reputation, John Gummer was the Agriculture Secretary at the time of BSE outbreak in the early 90s. I think it would be hard to argue that he came out well of that inquiry just so i think it would be hard to argue that the metropolitan police's leadership came out well of the mcpherson inquiry but and the reason why i think both those inquiries are useful examples yeah and we can argue and, and indeed uh my understanding is there will be a by the time this is in people's podries there will be a piece on channel 4 news which suggests there hasn't been that much progress since the mcpherson inquiry but um both of those inquiries did create lasting institutions and did create sort of changes and useful definitions that we use elsewhere in, in law. They didn't kind of start in a kind of like, okay, there's there's a blame stick then someone's gonna have to hold and it's certainly not gonna be Boris Johnson. And I think it's actually been the thing which has been quite good about the Grenfell Tower inquiry as well. And I would be surprised, to put it mildly, if at the end of that inquiry, at least one of the local authority, the manufacturers of some cladding, et cetera, et cetera, didn't end up in a situation where they then had to defend themselves in court. And then some of the evidence was what, had been uh, uncovered by the Morbeek inquiry. But the central aim of that inquiry is, first of all, okay, what caused this? And secondly, who is to blame? And then that allows you, okay, what's wrong with our system of regulation? What you know, What is about people just lying? What does people just lying suggest you should do about regulation? Whereas, um, although, you know, I'd be lying if I said I didn't think that there were problems with the COVID response that you could specifically solve by going, first, have a prime minister who's across the detail. First, don't implement the Health and Social Care Act. But none of those are actually that useful um, as a first point of of content. You know, in an odd way, right, whether your idealized prime minister not called Boris Johnson is Jeremy Hunt, Jeremy Corbyn, or Jeremy Berramy, um, <laughs> then what you need is to go, okay, what are the things that the machinery of the state would have got wrong in the coronavirus yeah, early days that would have held true for those politicians? One, it would obviously have been the fact that the explicit plan, right, which was not new, right, the explicit plan was. People aren't going to go inside, so I'm afraid you've just got to accept them. <laughs> yeah, you know, millions, you know, thousands upon thousands of people will die. How do you sort of deal with all of that? I don't really know how it is you can improve that culture. Yeah, you know, ironically, covering these in a kind of who's to blame? Weirdly, means no one actually ever is blamed because instead of ever having an inquiry about what went wrong, you just have this kind of like let's pass the blame around like a a parcel. I know what we would need to change, but that still leaves the rest of the edifice of the political class. And I don't really, yeah, it is something I'd really do to despair about is how do you get to a point where people like Dominic Cummings do not believe that an inquiry exists as an instrument of their revenge on Matt Hancock?
0: Yeah, no, exactly because it can be used to to point the finger, and it's it's a little bit like every time Labour loses an election, and <laughs> and when they when they try and interrogate what what went wrong, they usually think, okay, let's change the leader. You know, it's so much easier to think that it's about one person who got something wrong, and there are a lot of figures who did get things wrong during the COVID response. But like you say, that's not going to result in particularly useful lessons for the future. Holding the government to account over COVID nineteen should should have been easier than say with the Grenfell fire, for example, because that's all private companies. And you know, this is kind of the first time that we've had the the failings of, of these kind of construction companies and regulators and the ma- the, bu- the manufacturers of these kind of materials in the spotlight. Those kind of construction cases usually happen sort of in closed arbitration. So that's been you know that has been a unique thing about that inquiry, which is getting those documents, getting those you know terrified looking junior salespeople to tell you exactly what was going on in those companies, which otherwise it's really difficult as journalists to get hold of without FOI etc. So the COVID nineteen response should have been you know a bit more straightforward to to expose. But like you say, because a lot of the, well, not a lot of it, but some of the stuff has been outsourced to these private companies. And obviously, there's a certain amount that you can learn about how you know, they were procured, how the contracts were, were given out, the, the problems with, with all of that that have been well publicised. But you haven't been able to work out exactly what was going on in those companies. So I think that's something that the inquiry will, will be really useful for, because at the moment, it's just been up to, you know bodies like the good law project and individual cases to to analyze in in detail sort of what was wrong with each individual contract but like you say it's a culture that needs to be exposed and needs to be changed for the future so that will be i think the mo- one of the most useful things about the inquiry less so which figures sort of are the are the um are the villains of the piece but of course you know as we've seen with the Leveson inquiry, it, it's all—it's always going to play out that way in the media. It's always going to be more interesting, A, for people like Dominic Cummings, but also for, you know, mainstream media outlets to report on it in a way that is a bit like a, a pantomime. You know, this person was the villain. This person was saying the right thing all along. Who was on the right side of history? Who was on the wrong side of history? You know, here are the most embarrassing details of texts and emails that were sent because that's the stuff, you know, that, that people are morbidly fascinated in reading about and it kind of shows the human face of a crisis as well. So I don't think there's ever going to be a time where we see these inquiries or at least the people involved don't see these inquiries as trying to trying to play a blame game. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to the New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for 12 pounds. Go to newstatesman.com
1: you ask us.
0: So our question today is from Holly N. She asks, is Keir Starmer's interview with Piers Morgan a political masterpiece or a political misfire? Will it have any effect on his public approval ratings? So Stephen, we both watched it and you've been looking into the viewing figures. How many people will have actually seen that interview? It was Piers Morgan's life stories last um,
1: night. So one, 1. 1.7 million people watched it. Now, usually we would say, and we'd assume that would go up on catch-up. I mean, candidly, I don't think we, that applies in this case. Uh, uh, now, that may turn out to be a hilariously wrong prediction, but I think it will apply, right? There will be people who watch it on catch-up who haven't watched it before. But the type of person who watches a Life Stories program on catch-up has made their mind up about the topic of the Life Stories. The purpose of this type of event from the politician's perspective is broadly of the um this is very back of an envelope, but of the I think sixty percent of people who didn't switch off when they went from the is it Mask Singer? I think it's Mask Singer, or maybe it's Coronation Street. Though. It doesn't matter. The people who basically of the people who are watching anyway, who just kinda keep watching, do the majority of those people go yeah, this guy seems all right. I think the thing which is interesting is I think that the secular challenge for all political parties, uh yeah, Conservative, Labour, Lib Dem, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, is that, so yeah, this this programme got 1.7 million, or to put it differently, about half the audience of uh, Call the Midwife, right? Uh, uh, an objectively incredibly successful programme, right? You know, roughly the same amount of people watched Keir Starmer um, getting a bit weepy on ITV, as watched Fleabag, right? But what all of this has in common is, yeah, yeah. there are exceptions, right? There are things like the bodyguard or that thing with H in it. Um, <laughs> yeah, the, the people get do watch in huge numbers. But but the era of, you know, when Neil Kinnock did that sort of his, you know, Kinnock the movie, the party political broadcast, and you yeah, had the Vangelis kind of, you know, the soundtrack being like, oh, our new Labour Party. It was watched by Yeah, many, many, many millions of people because we didn't live in a multi channel world. There was no such thing as catch up. Um television just was event television in a kind of catch. Up. Yeah, this is the thing so, I mean in nineteen ninety two, right, there was weeks of well a week of stories about the Labour Party political broadcaster broadcast Jennifer 's ear about a little girl who needed ear treatment, and then you know it was it turned out it was a bit more complex than that, but basically the the row over that party political broadcast went on for you know more than a week. It was a dominant feature of the campaign. Loads of people watched it because there weren't many channels, right. And in many ways, the nearest comparison to it is the Jeremy Corbyn rampacked train, right? Yeah. Where, yeah, okay, you can have a back and forth. And actually, just just as with um, Jennifer's ear, I just like to return to this because I wrote this at the time. And, and some people were very snooty about it and was like, oh, you'd apologize for anything if Jeremy Corbyn did it, which, I mean, not true. But, <laughs> yeah, um, but... Um, but it turned out I was right. Just as with Jennifer's ear, the picture was more sympathetic to the Labour leadership than it appeared at the time. And just as with Jennifer's ear, where there was a real problem with NHS waiting lists and people having to go private in in 1992, there was a there is a real problem with the condition of of the UK's railways. Um, but Traingate was was over in in about a day because that is the speed at which. The people who cover politics move and the speed at which people who work in politics, therefore, kind of have to move. So, this is a long way to say, you know, ob- obviously, it is a masterstroke to be interviewed on what is still one of our major broadcasters in a fairly soft focus way. Unless, yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, I, I returned something to MP text me. And they said, they said, look, this is the kind of thing where if you don't think he came across well at this, you, you need to get. Something else in your life other than politics, because it shows, you're incapable of just giving the other, the other lot, or the other faction, or whatever, any benefit of the doubt. And they said the flip side of that, though, right, is if your candidate can't come across well in that type of interview, your candidate has big problems. It, it's not. I was about to say it's not a good thing to be able to come across well in that type of interview. It is a good thing to be able to come across in that kind of interview, but it's a good thing in the same sense that, you know, not when someone orders a burger from you when you work in, like, a fast food thing. Me not openly spitting in the burger is, is is good, but it's it's not the final step to being hireable. Um, yeah, so I guess I, I think yeah, it was a good get for them. In the m- modern world of media, the weird challenge is that... You have to do that thing a lot more. Yeah, I feel I don't know about you, but I feel like the media we're caught in this weird trap where We spend all of the run-up to an election campaign laughing at, like, oh, why does Sadiq Khan continually tell everyone he's the son of a bus driver? People didn't even really seem to notice that they had switched from a much more acrimonious and bitter Brexit-dividing line to a much broader and more inclusive, look, let's get Brexit done and stop arguing. And then after those elections, everyone goes, oh, wasn't it genius to keep repeating themselves? And then immediately snaps back to castigating politicians for just repeating themselves. So... Yeah, I think in some ways the, the, the problem is not, was this a good idea or a bad idea? But what is the thing that you do if you are not just an opposition of any political party? Because you can't do life stories every week, but you kind of do sort of need to do life stories every week now.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I know what you mean. I think it reminds me a little bit of, do you remember before the 2015 election when Ed Miliband was supposed to be being interviewed by Russell Brand? And at the time that was seen as, or well, at least within political circles that was seen as something that was going to be a big deal because I don't know why I think he had quite a big following at the time Russell Brand that is I'm not sure about Ed Miliband Um, he had quite a big following at the time and there was this sense that the Labour Party was trying to appeal to people who had never voted before and you know they were trying to have this sort of magical turnout of all of these secret Labour voters um, <laughs> you'll remember this because I think you used to write about how stupid it was every week but um, I remember waiting you know I was in the office I was waiting for this you know Russell Brand style he didn't tell you when it was going to happen so we kind of knew what when it was going to be what afternoon it was going to be but we were waiting for it to drop and obviously it was like quite underwhelming Ed Miliband did quite well in it there were no news lines. Russell Brand didn't endorse the Labour Party and it was sort of quite a big fuss over nothing. Um, and it reminded me a bit of that when I was when I was watching the beginning, when I was waiting for the Keir Starmer interview, because you, you sort of you sort of expect because you know the intention of what the politician is trying to use this interview for. And actually I thought it was really good that he was very honest about why he was doing it. He wanted to introduce himself to people he didn't feel like he had been able to yet because of the pandemic. Piers Morgan was explicit in saying that he was robotic, and he didn't, you know, he didn't contradict that. That's how he may have come across. So he was, he was more explicit in what he was trying to achieve. But it did sort of remind me of that, that kind of frenzy that was a bit of an anticlimax. And although I thought he came across really well in the interview, and I'm sure a lot of bits from it, particularly when he um, sort of comes close to tears, will be clipped, and so a lot more people will will see that than maybe saw sort of the original programme or the whole interview. I still think it, you know, it reveals more about the politician's intentions, which is more useful for, again, the political class than it perhaps it reels, reveals about the politician to a sizable chunk of the electorate. So it reminded me more of that than sort of a turning point for him, if you see what I mean. But he came across well. And, and like you say, that's that's sort of quite a low baseline, but at least at least he did <laughs> for his sake. And... If it gives him a boost of confidence, then I suppose that's a, that's also a good thing for the morale of the party as well.
1: Yeah. I th- what I thought was interesting uh, about the sort of the media coverage around it is the way that just as in about January, February, when I wrote that piece, which set off the the whole sort of rouse around it, there was a kind of hunger among a large chunk of the media for a sort of Keir Starmer actually a bit rubbish now. Then a combination of the vaccines and uh, his um, interesting reshuffle choices kind of made that happen to be incidentally correct. But there was kind of there was market demand a long time before that story was correct. And I think you can kind of see it in another way: people kind of desperately want to write the comeback story now. It's like we're bored. The usual cycle of <laughs> people would like the opposition leader to be you know, kind of on the up again because that's you know a more exciting story. And again, I I I, I both don't want to go. It's great, and he can do this stuff well, because which actually the best example of that is the 2017 election, right? Everyone who had had to cover Jeremy Corbyn in the interminable Labour leadership elections of 2015 and 2016 knew that he would do well in that kind of one show, Absolute Radio. You know, we've you know the elections in five months, and we've got the leader of the Labour Party here. You know, come you know with your questions on Drive Time, Fungible Music Radio FM, right? <laughs> We all knew that Jeremy Corbyn would – yeah, well, everyone who actually observed him closely. We, it was not controversial for those of us who covered that election he was going to do well. It was controversial for a large chunk of political journalism, and I, but, you know, it shouldn't have been. The significant thing is Theresa May couldn't do that sort of I am on radio. And that was part of the story in the 2017 election. So it is – important than he has come out of that stress test of can you do this quite important thing well um, but I think in our way the thing which would really cheer me up if I worked for Keir Starmer is the fact that quite clearly I think yeah, I mean, just as actually right, in that long period in which it was like, you know, crisis for Keir Starmer as his ratings collapsed to David Cameron levels. Um, I think even if um, the post reshuffle collapse, he hasn't managed to gain any of it back, which I don't think this interview will do. It's only 1.7 million right, in the ocean. But even if like he hasn't managed to use any of the events between now and Labour Party conference to turn that around. I think the appetite to cover the Labour Party conference speech as a turnaround among parts of the media will be so strong that short of him going on on yeah on stage with his fly undone, I think he will get his, you know, he turned it around, they said it couldn't be done. But I don't know if you were struck by this. The thing which would continue to give me the heebie-jeebies if I were the Labour Party is um, whenever he's asked about his vision, he gives these answers which only apply not only if you think, that the Tories are evil, but that the Tories don't actually want to achieve anything. Like, you know, it's really like, you know, the best country to be born in and the best country to grow old mm-hmm. in. It's just like that's 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 not a political vision, right? A political vision is and the way you get the best country to grow old in is social care on NHS terms. Um, to explicitly quote something that a metro mayor said to me the other day um yeah then yeah that that's yeah that's that's yeah that that's explicitly how you actually that's 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 the difference between just the thing that everyone in politics wants out of social care and the thing which turns it into a dividing line yeah. and he once again did the kind of except differently cycle you know a first-class education an economy which works up, so, no the the dividing line stuff is and that's why I would close every academy trust tomorrow. <laughs> or, and that's why, you know, we need to raise the minimum wage, you know, because that will tackle our productivity, right? That That's the sort of, the and the weird thing is, is they have loads of policy. They've announced another, actually, I really like, 15 billion pounds of, of really interesting and, and quite positive stuff on education catch-up. But once again, there's still no values dividing line, right? There's like a content dividing line but there isn't a kind of policy story yet and i think the absence of that which obviously didn't matter at all in this interview is still to me their biggest entry on the risk register
0: yeah yeah and i would add to that i think another problem with with speaking like that is that and this was something that i wrote about recently there was a left-wing a person who specializes in left-wing campaigning who was telling me we're really good at talking about problems and we're really good at trying to convince people that things are really bad but that's not a vision. And I think the problem with saying a, the best country to live in, the best country to grow old in, or whatever, is that a lot of people do already think that about Britain. Um, even if you're having a really bad time, you still, you know, usually have a very strong connection to, to where you live and think that it's, you know, you have an affection for it that goes beyond the fact that you think that the social care system is broken, for example. So I think saying those things, it. it, it it is it is it is a more hopeful message than Labour has had in the past, but it still, like you say, doesn't really suggest. It doesn't really suggest how you how you change people's opinion of where they could be. So you have to, like you say, you have to pe- take people on that journey with you. If you're telling people that you're going to deliver first class education for all, you have to tell them why and how. Um, because I think a lot of people may think, oh, you know. We have fantastic schools, you know, it's people's people's feelings about where they've grown up, where they live, where they call home, their country are very different from their feelings about what particularly is broken about the system that they're trying to navigate at any given time. And so I think they have to be careful to sound optimistic and not to state the obvious that people already believe is true.
1: Partly in order to write about this, I I went and rewatched a bunch of party political broadcasts from the last two elections where the Labour Party gained seats, i.e. 2017 and 1997. And the thing which is really interesting about both of them but, is the subtext of all of the 1997 campaign is basically the country is, yeah, the the government is tired, um, the government is clapped out, the public realm is collapsing wherever you look, and we would spend a lot of money to fix it. But the underlying message is basically like, but don't worry, we're not going to spend any money, (laughs) right? There's this kind of weird sort of kind of like, there's the sort of subtext of all of the messaging. And then there's the sort of, but don't worry, guys, we wouldn't do anything too crazy. And of course, they get in, they keep to the spending limits for, you know, the the length of the pledge. And then they go, you remember when you voted for us to spend all of this money? Yeah, well, we're increasing national insurance. Okay, thanks, bye. (laughs) And... uh, the interesting comparison there with 2017, right, where the 2017 baseline spending assessment assumes that the benefit cap is staying, assumes that the two-parent... Assumes that, like, all of this horrible stuff is is staying. But again, the subtext of all of the messaging is, things look pretty bad, don't they? Public services is falling apart. We'll probably spend... Some- <laughs> Even when you can, like, get out Britain's future and go, uh, this includes the baseline cuts. And I think... Now yeah. I think you can you can argue in both this about how deliberate uh, that is and how much just the fact that the default state of the Labour Party is we will spend more money than the Tories people just instinctively believe that, and therefore you the funding Britain's future, the we will keep to the spending limit stuff, is pulling so hard at that pre existing belief. Yeah. Then you have to you know your level of reassurance has to be really quite high before people start to actually believe that Jeremy Corbyn's body would really have kept its promise and kept the benefit cap. But I think there is an underlying problem that at the moment the Labour Party doesn't really seem to have that balance worked out either, um, both in the Keir Starmer's vibe is not as radical as Keir Starmer would like it to be, right? And you can tell he kind of gets a bit snippy whenever he's asked about it, so you can tell there's this underlying thing of just being like... I'm in the middle of the Labour Party and I should be treated, treated as such. Um, but also the flip side of that is I feel like the way they might then try and overcompensate for that might ram slap bang into why it is and it was, yeah, all of that funding Britain's future stuff was the correct approach, not least because talking about how you'll pay for something is a good way of telling people what you're against, um, and all of the like, oh, but not too much was the correct approach, just because it... Turned out that wasn't really true in 97 and I imagine it would turn out it wasn't really true in 2017. Doesn't change the fact that it was the correct approach to provide uh that reassurance. Even people who you meet in elections or you meet in the rest of like, who have quite a difficult time, mostly they are basically like, oh well, you know, if I was in America, I'd probably be shot. Because, you know, it's a gun-ridden, lawless state. And if I was in Europe I'll be French, right? Um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I kind of get this idea that France is worse run than the United Kingdom for nebulous reasons and I can't really um, strikes. Can't risk. Yeah, yeah <laughs> strikes, right? And, and yeah, and basically I just think that an opposition party always needs to be in the position of Britain will be better under us, not Britain is currently bad just then Britain will be better that was the underlying problem the Tories had um, in the noughties they just often seemed to hate the country until David Cameron came along and that's still the underlying problem that the, the Labour Party has under Keir is that it still paints slightly too much in these kind of monochrome like we're a terrible country to be born in and a terrible country to die in which guys you can think that's true as much as you like but if people don't believe that then they just don't buy into any of the other stuff
0: You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shikelian, and my colleague Stephen Bush. You can find me on Twitter at Anoush underscore
1: C. And you can find me on Twitter at, at Stephen KB.
0: We're produced by Chris Stone, and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening, and please leave us a review. Don't forget to subscribe. If you want to email in a question for the You Ask Us section, you can send one to podcasts at newstatesman.co.uk.